This is Africa Digest. Welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, in studio with Onlens uh, Insi, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zambian police arrest leader of the Zambian opposition party, uh, Chishimba. Kamwili on charges of defaming President Edgar South African businessman Adam Katsavelos has agreed to pay a 150,000 rand fine and issue a public apology over his racial outbursts. And Ugandan Museum unveils a rare positive side of Idi Amin that drew mixed reaction from the public. We'll also be having your sport as well as your economics news a little bit later on in the show. Right now in the studio, I do have Ms. Onelensinzi who does news for me. And uh, someone you guys don't know is our technical producer and uh, his name is Wiseman Mangele. Hello to the both of you. Good afternoon. He does consider himself wise, by the way. Is he? Wiseman, are you wise? Bonjour. <laughs> Woo! So you might not know this, but we do have some new technology in the studio that uh, has uh, had a lot of people a little bit confused. I'm pretty sure that Onele has had her ups and downs. I've had my fishy. Yes. But Wiseman, how are you dealing with it so far? Expected is. <laughs> so Wiseman says that he is the expert when it comes to this technology. So if you hear any uh, technical problems today, you know who to tweet us about. And that man is Wiseman Mangele. That is Wiseman Mangele. He says he's the expert. So we shall see today if he really is. But right now the time is uh, 17.02 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Onelin Sinsi with your latest news bulletin. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Zamora. Sudan's Prime Minister, Abdullah um, Hamdok, has been locked in talks to form the first cabinet since the ouster of veteran leader Omar al-Bashir. The Prime Minister had been due to name his key picks on Wednesday following last week's stirring in of a joint civilian military sovereign council. On Thursday, a source close to Hamdok said the Prime Minister was still considering nominees for the cabinet. Deliberations are said to still be underway and it is not clear when they will end. On Tuesday, Hamdok confirmed that he had received the FFC's list of 49 nominees for 14 ministries. Five villagers, including fishermen, have been beheaded by suspected religious fighters in Mozambique's northern province of Cabo Delgado. The BBC's Tommy Oladipo. Another five people were killed last week in two separate incidents, also blamed on Al-Shabaab. The so-called Islamic State group claims to have a presence in Mozambique and has recently released statements about attacks on Christians and army collaborators. But Mozambique's government has dismissed any talk of IS involvement in the violence. Earlier this month, President Felipe Nusi claimed that the insurgents were receiving funding from residents of Beira, the country's second largest city. The militants, though, have not made any public statement about their ideology nor affiliation. Three stolen vehicles have been recovered near the Mozambique border of northern KwaZulu-Natal province. Police spokesperson Tulani Zwane says a 28-year-old suspect had appeared in court for being in possession of stolen property. Zwane says the suspect was arrested just before crossing the border while traveling in a suspected stolen truck. He says two more vehicles were found hidden in the bushes near the border. In operations conducted this week, a 28-year-old suspect was traveling in a separate truck and was confronted by the police. Uh, the truck was uh, stolen in Houghton Province as a result. The suspect was then arrested and detained for possession of the uh, property suspected to be stolen. The other two vehicles, which were 4 by 4 were also found in the bushes at the end of the area. Although there is no arrest, but the vehicles were recovered. 
Nigeria has announced the partial closure of its borders with Benin to clamp down on the smuggling of goods in the country. The statement by President Muhammadu Buhari's office did not indicate when the latest measures took effect and what the partial closure entails. It said the measure would allow Nigeria's security forces to develop a strategy to combat smuggling, with which it called a dangerous trend. Lastly, civil societies in Niger are expressing anger over the continued detention of an activist, Sadat Ilya Dan Malam. His appeal trial was held on Wednesday, though the final ruling will be issued on November 20. The appeal trial was initially scheduled for July 31, but was postponed to August 28. Sadat has been in detention since April last year, charged with participation in an insurrectional movement and conspiracy against the security of the state. He was charged in relation to the protest against the finance law that had been organized by civil society organizations in different parts of Niger. Charges on this were dropped on May 20, though he still remains in custody. Channel African News, I am Onelin Zinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial from an African perspective. Moving over to Zambia, where police have arrested leader of the Zambian opposition party, Chishimba Kambwili, on charges of defaming President Edgar Lungu. Kambwili, leader of the National Democratic Congress, is alleged to have insulted the head of state in a video which went viral on social media. His arrest came two days after the state registrar of uh, societies cancelled the registration of the NDC, saying its constitution was flawed. Kambwili and other opposition politicians have accused Lungu of cracking down on dissent, a charge regularly dismissed by the government, which says it protects free speech. For more on this, Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjalele spoke to Nicholas Piri, Zambian political analyst, and he says Kambwili's arrest did not come as a surprise. The arrest of Chishimba Kambuli has not come as a surprise at all uh, to those of us that have been observing the political space and also the civic space in Zambia since 2000 and, uh, you know, 2016. Uh, you may want to know for a record that uh, from 2016, we have had more than 10 voices that are so critical about the government in terms of its accountability, its transparency, have, you know, have been arrested. Yeah, in 2016, you had the, you know, HH, the leader of the highest, the biggest opposition. Chimba Kambuli himself has been arrested, uh, you know, since uh, 2016, countless times. You had uh, one Saviat Chimba was arrested. Sean Tembo was arrested. Fresh Asiwale was arrested. The last president, the former last president, was also, you know, threatened, had her life threatened. The Financial Intelligence Center director has been threatened. So for those of us that have been observing how the PF regime reacts to critical voices, to accountability, and not surprised. Look, Chishimba Kambwili is one of those former ministers, former members of the ruling Patriotic Front, who has made the government sit so uncomfortably. If you talk about the charges that, you know, uh, Chishimba Kambwili faces today, I can tell you that they do not stand anywhere in the face of human rights principles. The defamation you know, um, act of Zambia was promulgated in 1954. It's a colonial piece of legislation which does not respect the fundamental rights and freedoms to expression. And Zambia has a very comprehensive bill of rights which even stipulates under what circumstances that your freedom to expression can be curtailed. And one of those circumstances is when you are putting the state at threat, or indeed, if you are putting public order at threat. Now, the charges that Shimbakambu faces today are charges of utterances that could have annoyed the president. And in terms of the law, in terms of human rights law, words that annoy the president or make him feel uncomfortable cannot be criminalized. Now you say that uh, he has made the ruling uh, Patriotic Front uh, uncomfortable after his party broke away from uh, the ruling party. How influential is uh, his party, the NDC? Talk to us about the influence that uh, the NDC has in uh, the Zambian uh, politics. Look, 
you can never underestimate the influence that, first of all, Chichimba Kambuli as a person has. Later on, you can never underestimate the influence of the NDC. The Republican president, Mr. Edgar Chagwalungu, is actually on record of having regretted having lost Chichimba Kambuli because of some people, according to him, who went to tell him that, you know, uh, Chichimba Kambuli was not a straight, you know, a straight person. And based on that information, the president did fire Kambuli. And later, the president confessed that it was a mistake to actually fire Chichimba Kambuli. So, yes, the NDC is one of the fastest growing opposition political parties. Look, this is a party which is less than two years old, but they want to contest a parliamentary seat in Rhone, in a place called Rhone constituency, and this is one place where the patriotic front calls it its bedroom. And Chishimba Kambwiri, with the new NDC, went and humiliated the ruling patriotic front in that particular seat. And from that time, the picture of the ruling party in that particular region, the Copper Belt region, has not been the same. Now, what did uh, Mr. Kambwili Chishimba say in uh, that video which has been circulated all over Zambia, which was uh, described as disparaging to the president? What exactly did he say? Well, uh, the contents of the video, to be honest with you, what I have seen myself on social media, the president is not mentioned anywhere. The president is not mentioned anywhere. And uh, we, we also have exactly the same question that what is it in this video that is defamatory to the president? And we, we, we cannot answer that question. It's only when the issue goes to court, probably, that the court can make a ruling of what was defamatory. But in as far as I've listened to that video over and over again, there's absolutely nowhere where Shimbakambwini mentions the president. How the police brings in the president into that video would be a very interesting case to, to, to note. But let me say this, that the arrest of Shimbakambwini really is not about that video. That video is just a scapegoat. Let me tell you what is happening on the ground now. Sure. As I'm talking to you, as I'm talking to you, Yesterday, he was denied police bond. And police bond is a human right. It's prescribed in our laws. He has been denied police bond. And we were hoping that he would appear before the court today, because that's what the law says. I can tell you that he has not appeared before the court. We don't know when he's going to appear. And he, no one has been allowed access to where he's held, including his relatives, including his own senior party officials. So you can clearly see that it has really little to do with the video. It has more to do with vengeance. Moving on to Zambia right now, where uh, Zambian police have arrested the leader of the Zambian opposition party, Chimba Kambwili. Apologies. We have just uh, completed that one. That was Nicholas Piri, Zambian political analyst on the line from capital Zambia, talking to Kumbelo Munzalele. The Ugandan Museum, in conjunction with the Uganda Broadcasting Corporation, are holding an exhibition in which a selection of never-before-seen photographs of the country's former president, Idi Amin, are being shown to the public. The exhibition comes 40 years after the end of uh, Amin's regime and at a time when some of the country's population is changing its perspective on his legacy. The BBC's Dear Jean uh, reports from Kampala. Uganda motto. Idi Amin ruled Uganda with an iron fist for eight years after taking power in a coup in 1971. When he was toppled in 1979, Amnesty International estimated half a million people had died during his reign. He fled into exile to Saudi Arabia and died of kidney failure in 2003. Sarah Bananuka, a retired teacher, was only 21 when Amin came to power. A year later, her father and three brothers were executed for allegedly having links to rebel groups. Looking at one of the photos on display, she recalls what life was like under his rule. They are killing in this door. Somebody is dancing here. Some people are very happy. Others were quiet. But those who had nothing to do with those people who were victims enjoyed life. Sarah is one of the many people that have come to Uganda's National Museum to see the exhibition called The Unseen Archives of Idi Amin. The never-before-seen footage had long been forgotten in a cabinet somewhere on the premises of Uganda's national broadcaster. The rolls and rolls of unprocessed films were found in 2015. 
I'm walking through the Uganda Museum where hundreds of pictures of the late Id Amin have been hanged. These are unseen pictures of him doing government work, him relaxing, watching football, posing for photos with his friends. These pictures are being seen by hundreds of people every day, including school children. The museum's commissioner, Rose Mwanja, says the exhibition was intended to shed a different light on Amin's legacy. The curators wanted to make an exhibition that is positive because initially some of the prominent figures felt we wanted to demonize Idi Amin and yet they feel there were some positive things that he made for this country. In more recent years, some young Ugandans have begun to regard Amin as a hero, largely for his nationalist policies. According to me, he was a fighter. Yeah, he was a good leader. Idi Amin was known as a very hard-working president. Because, first of all, whatever thing we are seeing now was left by President late Idi Amin Dada. One person who agrees with the sentiment is Abdurahi Nasur. He was a governor during Amin's reign and appears in many of the exhibited photographs. After Amin's overthrow, Nasul was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for murder and for forcing Ugandans who wore bathroom sandals in the street to eat them. 24 years later, in 2001, he was pardoned by President Museven and released from prison. He was a good person during his time. He's the best of his time. But those who suffered under Amin's reign, like Sarah Bananuka, say the youth have no right to speak positively of his rule. Now, how can the youth today talk about Amin as an angel when they don't know him? Where did they meet him? What did he do for them? Can they come out clear and say he did ABCD for the youth? Mwambusi Ndebesa, a historian, believes the surge of positive regard for the brutal strongman president exists because the country's history has not been properly preserved and may soon be forgotten. Because we have not preserved our history and we have not concentrated on the dictatorship of Idi Amin, history has been retold and rewritten by the successive regimes. So it appears as if now the history of Uganda began with the current government. And as such, the young generation who did not experience Idi Amin firsthand, they only hear of Idi Amin who evokes emotions of a big daddy. Forty years on, the contradictory consequences of Idi Amin's rule remain and the exhibition may provide a space to discuss them publicly. And that report was by the BBC's Dear Jean. The time is now 17.18 Central African time. We'll continue right after this. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. South African businessman Adam Katzavelos has agreed to pay a 150,000 rand fine and issue a public apology over his racial outbursts in August last year. He has reached a settlement agreement with uh, the country's Human Rights Commission in the Equality Court, sitting in the Randburg Magistrates Court north of Johannesburg. The commission brought the application after a self-recorded video of Katzavelos emerged in which he uttered the K-word while on holiday in Greece in August last year. Sasha Naidu reports. As punishment for his racial slurs last year, Adam Katsuvelos will have to fork out 150,000 rand to charity. Katsuvelos has reached an agreement with the Human Rights Commission to make the payment over a total of 30 months. The Commission's Boang Jones says Katsuvelos will also be required to do 160 hours of community service, which will be spread over six months. Mr. Katsuvelos is expected to visit uh, Soweto, where this community services 
will be performed and he will be working closely with the foundation in the endeavor to embed a culture of human rights in Soweto and to also allow him to work with diverse communities. And we hope that through this endeavor we would have achieved our objectives, which was to ensure that um, we contribute towards nation building. Katsavelos has also made a public apology. He says he deeply regrets his actions. I am truly disgusted, horrified and ashamed of my behaviour. I am acutely aware of how profoundly dehumanising and hurtful it must be for black South Africans to be referred to by the K-word. I acknowledge what I have done and the harm I have caused to all South Africans, irrespective of race, and to my family, and I take full responsibility and hold myself accountable for it. I'm deeply remorseful. I apologize sincerely. Never again will I be so insensitive as not to take another person's feelings into account. I have already mentioned the self-loathing and shame I have felt as a result of my actions. I have become aware of the extent to which I, as a perpetrator, have damaged my own dignity. The Equality Court has accepted the settlement agreed between the HRC and Katsavelos. Here's Presiding Magistrate Neelan Karikan. The settlement agreement was handed to the court prior to this court starting. So the court had the benefit of at least going through the settlement agreement. The court is further satisfied that the interests of society, the complainant and the respondent were adequately considered and balanced in reaching the settlement. In the circumstances, the court accepts the settlement agreement and it is made an order of court. No costs are ordered. Earlier, in a separate matter brought by the EFF, the Randberg Magistrates Court heard that Katsavelos will now challenge the Gauteng Director of Public Prosecution's decision not to withdraw the charges against him. Katsavelos will be back in court on the 2nd of October. And that report was by Sashin Naidu. Tanzania says it has reached an agreement with neighboring Burundi to begin sending back all Burundian refugees from October, adding that the repatriation will take place in collaboration with the United Nations. Hundreds of people were killed and more than 400,000 fled to neighboring countries due to violence. The United Nations says was mostly carried out by state security forcing, uh, forces following President Pierre Nkurunzinza's decision in 2015 to run for a third disputed term in office. Burundi suspended all cooperation with the UN Human Rights Office in the country after a UN-commissioned report accused the Bujumbura uh, government and its supporters of being responsible for crimes against humanity. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Mr. Isaiah Ndirizoshira, Burundian ambassador to South Africa. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, now, Ambassador, what is the rationale behind the agreement reached between Burundi and Tanzania? Uh, in fact, I have to make a precision here because this is not a new agreement. There was an agreement in March 2018 which was signed between by Burundi, Tanzania and UNHCR in order to repatriate 2,000 refugees every week since March 2018. And and that process went on for a few months. And uh, as time went on, Burundi Burundi authorities realized that UNHCR was bringing fewer and fewer refugees. And when Burundian authorities asked UNHCR why, why there were fewer, fewer refugees being repatriated, UNHCR staff said, in fact, it's Tanzania which is not willing to release them, to release the, the, the full amount. So, but when, when Burundi authorities asked the Tanzanian counterparts why there were so few refugees being repatriated, in fact, Tanzanian authorities said, if UNHCR told them Burundi is not ready to, to welcome those refugees. So the two Tanzanians and Burundian authorities realized that UNHCR was, was playing a sort of game and was not really w- willing to repatriate the, 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 the refugees. Because you see, when with the 2,000 refugees being repatriated every week, that means in less than one year, the, whole, the, the two camps would be empty. So, in fact, the, 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 the Tanzanian and Burundian authorities realized that UNHCR local staff did not want really to repatriate those, those, those refugees because if the camps are empty, they lose their, their jobs. That, that was the, the Burundian and Tanzanian authorities realized. That's why there was a meeting between 
Burundi, Tanzania, and UNHCR so that to revive, to, 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 to redeem this 2018 March uh, agreement so that refugees start again to be repatriated on that, uh, on, on that amount of 2,000 refugees every, every week. Now, Ambassador, the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, says that the conditions in Burundi are not conducive to promote returns, uh, adding that it is assisting refugees to indicate the, to, to indicate uh, that they have made a voluntary choice to return home. What is your respo- response to the uh, refugee agency's concerns? In 2018, March 2018, the UNHCR signed the agreement to repatriate refugees in Burundi. That means conditions were there so that refugees can be repatriated. Since then, nothing had changed. In fact, nothing changed in Burundi. Peace is still there. Security is there for everybody. So there was no reason at all for, 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 the, for the refugees to, to, not, to, to not, for the process to stop. Because the process has started in March 2018 in a, in, in, with UNHCR, Tanzania, and Burundi. So the conditions have not changed. That's why Burundian authorities, Tanzanian authorities, are insisting that that process continue. Now, is Burundi going to uphold international obligations and ensure that uh, any returns are voluntary in line with the tripartite agreement signed in March 2018, and also, can you say that their security is granted or guaranteed? Yes. In fact, the security is guaranteed for everybody. There is security for everybody, there is peace for everybody, and security is guaranteed, and the refugees know that. And they are with, refugees are willing to, to go back. But the, the Burundian authorities and Tanzanian authorities have observed that, in fact, UNHCR local staff did not want really to, to repatriate them more because if, if the camps are empty, they will get their job back in. And uh, is the Burundian government also perhaps considering striking deals with uh, other neighboring countries such as Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo that will see more refugees returning back home? Burundi has called to all refugees to, to go back home because it is a reality that peace and security since 2017 since 2016, peace and security are a reality in Burundi, and the Burundi authorities have been calling all those refugees to go back to go back home. And the Home Affairs, Burundi Home Affairs Minister made a, paid a visit to those camps to explain them to to to, to, to sanitize them so that they they go back. There are even refugees who who can go Burundi and witness. That the, that the situation in, on, on the ground is really peaceful, the, the security is guaranteed so that they come back and tell, and, and, and tell other refugees that, so that there is a really a real willingness from the refugees to go back home. But the, 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 only, the only challenge was on the part of those UNHCR local staff who were really not willing to, 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 uh, to, to repatriate them. That's why Burundian, Burundian and Tanzanian authorities decided to meet again with UNHCR so that to enforce the March 2018 agreement. Now, lastly, Ambassador, uh, the encouragement of refugees to go home is all good and well, but what logistical um, assistance is the government going to provide to ensure that these refugees make it home? In fact, in, in, the, in that March, March 2018 agreement, there was all, all, all these log- logistical arrangements. Now, if, if, the, if, if the UNHCR is pulling out from the agreement, Tanzania and Burundian are ready, are ready to, to put in place all the, all the logistical arrangements which are needed for the repatriation. But the, but the, the UNHCR promised that as long as the repatriation is on a voluntary basis, it will be uh, supplying all the logistical necessary means for the repatriation. And there will be no forced repatriation the Burundian authorities will, will be respecting the international regulations in, in, in that matter so that the, the repatriation will be done on, 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 on a voluntary basis. But we know that many, the, major, the great majority of the refugees are willing, are, are willing to go back home. And that's why Burundian authorities and Tanzanian authorities agreed to help them to, to, so that the process will start all over again. All right, Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, sir.
And that is Isaiah Ntirizo Shira, Burundian ambassador to South Africa. Again, thank you very much to him for joining us. It's now time for us to cross on over to the Newsday's Kiz Onele with your latest news headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Sudan's new Prime Minister, Abdullah Hamdok, is still locked in talks to form the first cabinet. Nigeria has announced the partial closure of its border with Benin. And rights activists decry overcrowding and outmoded conditions in Senegal's jails. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Gender equality in the South African media and creative sector was on the spotlight today as predominantly women representatives from the sector gathered in Johannesburg to interrogate the gender disparity that still exists. Organized by UN Women and Partners, the conference sought to challenge industry stakeholders to fairly represent women across the board. The conference, convened as Women's Month, observed annually in August, draws to an end. One of the speakers at the event was UN Women Country Director Anne Gituku Shongwe, who now joins us on the line. Thank you very much for joining us, Anne. Thank you so much. Now, Anna, a very uh, pertinent way to, conclu- to, include, uh, to conclude Women's Month is by creating a platform where an important sector of influence in society reflects on itself. So what is happening in terms of gender representation in media? Gender representation in the media, as you know, is uh, very male, very white male-owned. Uh, it's also very white and male leadership. The editors in general are male. We're finding very, very low representation um, in general in terms of the decisions in the newsroom where decisions are made. And so what we find is that uh, an editor very often who is a man is making decisions about what the kind of images and stories are that are being portrayed. Um, And yet you are the opinion makers. You're the ones who shape how society feels about a particular issue, whether it's about gender-based violence or about the economy. And so the, the, the intention with this media conference um, in partnership with GIZ is to be able to actually invite you as media partners to start uh, you know, committing yourself to looking at your institution, what does representation look like, but also looking at the decisions you're making, the, the, the news you're covering, the, and, and really challenging media media. Um, reporters to, you know, un- unbias their own views and begin to look at, 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 at stereotypes that are gender empowering, that are inclusive. So that's what this conference is about. Um, and we're hopeful that, uh, you know, we've, got, we've had quite a strong representation. And, uh, Anne, why does female representation in the media matter so much for the broader society? Well, we want to build a gender equal world. We want to build a world that's inclusive. We want to build a world where everybody feels represented. If you look at something like um, adverts and commercials, over 70% of women who watch ads and commercials say that they don't feel represented. Similarly, um, if you look at news, there's barely um, less than 30% of the stories that are on the media 
are about women. And even then, when the representation, you know, in terms of the story, it's not about powerful images of women. It's very often about women in stereotypical positions and roles. So in, 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 in all our collective quests to create a society, the kind of society that we want, a society that we all want to be a part, part of, we want to be able to make sure that those who drive and shape the stories are people who are representative in the same way from a race perspective. You want somebody from you know, different races to be able to represent their perspectives. We want the same for um, gender equality. And so we, we, we know that it will take us 200 years before we reach gender equality if we continue at the current pace. So what we're talking about now is let's bring women um, editors on board in terms of representation. Let's get more uh, men who are in the in the industry to also begin to question their own biases and begin to um, really define what, what, what is the world that we want and how do you participate in that and how do you shape that differently. So um, it's about unstereotyping. This is really the big message here. We want to unstereotype. No, and I think it's very important yeah. to distinguish between the message that is being put out here because um, a lot of people might say that um, they see a lot of uh, black women on the covers of magazines, especially here in South Africa. But uh, this is more with regards to representation behind the scenes, right? It's all, you know, even in representation um, in, the, in the magazine covers. This is new. It's new and recent. And even then, it's portraying a particular image of a woman. I mm. think that there are particular magazines that have made huge efforts to make sure that they start shifting the narrative around women and black women and representing them in their real forms. You know, women, you know, who are not, they're not always tall, skinny, lanky women, but women who represent the majority of us. Yeah. Um, so there's issues there as well. But what we're talking about is that um, if you want to change the way that media is um, influencing and shaping um, attitudes and thoughts and uh, choices that people are making in society, we want to change from the top. So make sure that we've got editors who are either very gender responsive or who are women themselves who recognize what women's needs are. Um, we want to make the changes throughout uh, the organization. We want to gather stories that are representational. So it's both behind the scenes and in the front. So it's the ownership structure. Um, like I said, it's a similar argument to a race argument. If you want to create, create transformation and inclusivity, you want to make sure that you've got people who understand and recognize that experience. And so um, in trying to create a future that we want, where your daughter and my daughter and our grandchildren, our granddaughters feel safe in this context of violence, where there's so much violence, so much gender-based violence in our society, you know, you want the media to be portraying women in much stronger positions. You want them to portray gender relationships at the household level in a much more equal and, and, and shared uh, way rather than one that is very dominant and very abusive. And, and these are some of the images that are portrayed all the time and perpetuated. So from media to TV to film to um, uh, stories, all of this, we want to unstereotype all of it so that we can start shaping the future that we want. Oh, and before we uh, dive deeper in terms of gender-based violence and how media plays a part in that, uh, let's talk a little bit about how important it is for the public to speak out. I've seen a lot of people who have spoken out with regards to the images that are being used, I think more especially on uh, articles that have been shared on social media when it comes to uh, maybe race relations where if a, a certain article is about uh, a, a white person or a white man, uh, they will not put the image up, but if it's about someone who is black, their, their, their image goes up immediately without them having even appeared in court. How important is it for us to speak out when it comes to those kind of things? Well, I think that, um, you know, we're talking about freedom of the press here, and so we want to make sure that as much as people are experiencing, as much as people are able to, that they have the freedom and the right to be able to project their stories and feel comfortable and safe that their stories will 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 be will be shared um, as truth to the to the real real situation as it is, or so they will really reflect the reality of the of their experience. Um, and so, you know, it's important that in your censorship process, that you're 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 censoring because it's harmful to the situation or it's harmful, um, you know, the image is harmful to the person. 
And so that's important for you to be able to be careful as you do that and you center it correctly. But I think the problem that we have is that each of us carries biases from our upbringing. We carry biases mm. from however we grew up. And so we carry those biases into every decision that we make. So if we're censoring, we center with that bias. You know, if we're projecting and cracking jokes and making fun of, a, of an image or a story, we're doing that carrying our biases. So, you know, you find um, very senior men very often having lovely jokes about women around the corner. And to them, it's just a joke. But for a woman, this is completely violent. Um, and so one of the big things that we're doing with this uh, initiative is inviting media companies, all forms of media companies, to join us in t- making a, taking this compact and saying, how do we actually start reflecting the reality of the society that we're, we're, we're living in? In actual fact, what we found is that when ads and images are unstereotyped, we're seeing much greater revenues. Um, for companies because they're, they're starting to change images. So one of the big things that we're discussing here is this stereotype alliance that's related to ad- the advertising um, and marketing uh, creative world where, you know, and I shared a story today about how when a company is, is, is advertising a Jaguar or a Land Rover, right, you have the image of a, uh, a naked woman or half-naked woman in a bikini mm-hmm. sprawled across the the Jaguar, and they had suddenly this image of this woman that is portrayed that makes you want to buy this car. Um, and, and for us as women, that's, that's demeaning to us. I don't want to drive a car that has this, you know, or you. I'm not sure what it is about the sexualization or objectification of a woman that makes you want to buy a Jaguar, you know? Um, we don't want to be portrayed like that, and I don't think you should be wanting to have that kind of image around you. So what yes. we're doing is inviting companies to say, Portray the woman in, in a way that is powerful. And, you know, if you think about it, that could be your mother. If that's the only job your mother would get, that would be your mother. Do you want your mother to be projected in that way? Mm. Right? Um, and so we want to start changing that and bringing the reality of what we see. Our mothers are powerful. We want those powerful images as we see women in and I'm sure that, uh, you know, this this uh, analogy that you've just portrayed actually touches directly with regards to what I was going to say next with regards to gender based violence, because it, it, it paints women as, um, you know, as an accessory or as an object that can be objectified. And I'm sure that this actually adds to uh, the problem of sexual harassment that uh, a lot of women in media have been battling with for a long time. One, what will it take to turn the tide around? And two, are men really on board in efforts to address gender inequality and violence uh, in the space? Well, what we are finding is that sexual harassment in the workplace in general is a big issue. And it's a big issue because of who holds power and because of how the, you know, the view of how power is transferred and the desperation of many young women who are looking for work, they're desperate for work. And, you know, a person with power, a man usually who has, who has a lot of power, can determine how she behaves uh, or what decisions and choices she makes in order for her to be able to get this job. Um, so this is common. The Me Too campaign really brought attention. And what we see is that the film and media industry um, seems to have an even more elevated sexual harassment um, that has not been addressed because of the power of those who control um, the media. Um, in the media industry and in the film industry in particular, Women are earning 30 cents to every dollar that a man earns. In normal corporates, it's between 70 to 80 percent, 70 to 80 cents for every dollar that a, a man earns. It's still unequal, but it's even more unequal in a media in a media context. And some of it is just because of the sheer power and the way in which it's organized. And so, the violation of women in the workplace is a major issue in um, the media industry. It's a major issue across all. Uh, uh, institutions, but in the media industry, it is particularly a big problem. And so um, one of the things we're wanting to do with this campaign is to push that uh, this compact media compacts with companies would actually push the companies to sign um, compacts and agree that sexual harassment is has no place in their place of work and hold the CEO responsible for that. Because this is an experience that is so common that over 40, 45% of women 
in the media say that they experience sexual harassment on a regular basis. So this has to change. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to even create the kind of media that we want, the kind of stories that we want, because we're losing capacity. Women are strong capacity that's coming into uh, People shape fantastic stories. They're filmmakers, they're producers, they're potential, you know, editors and, and mm-hmm. editors in chief and so on. And now we're killing that by bringing on our, you know, um, I don't know, uh, sort of beliefs that we have this right to women's bodies in any space where they are. Um, and this is something that we really have to change. And it's, it is, it, you know, we have to hold people accountable. Um, if, you know, they talk about naming and shaming and gray lists that identify the men who are actually harassing women in the yes. workplace. So there's different, you know, and some of it is really just, just inviting leaders within companies like this and media companies to say, under your watch, you know, you have to take responsibility that never under your watch will you be, will you be found to be condoning sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm, and it's very important that these conversations it's continue to happen. Up. So uh, uh, big ups to you and all the other women who are involved in this conversation. And thank you very much for joining us. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. No problem. Thank you. And that is Anne Gituku Shonge, Country Director of UN Women in South Africa. Let's cross on over to Tracy Boomgaard for your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Nigeria has announced the partial closure of its border with Benin to clamp down on the smuggling of goods into the country. Nigerian authorities say they are targeting massive smuggling activities, especially of rice, taking place on that corridor. Nigeria is heavily reliant on imports to feed its booming population, while the government is seeking to bolster agriculture as it looks to diversify the oil-dependent economy. The measure has helped push up prices, creating an incentive for smuggling from neighbouring countries. The judge president of the Competition Appeal Court of South Africa, Judge Dennis Davis, says the complexity of using the Constitution to break the monopoly of big business and arrest anti-competitive behaviour is that companies can also use the same Constitution to defend themselves. He says all the people, including crooks, have rights before the law. Davis was participating in a panel discussion at the Competition Law and Economic Policy Conference in Pretoria. I agree readily that, in fact, one of the problems that we face consistently, and I think it's what Tim Baker is saying, is that large corporations come before the tribunal, come before the court and invoke the Constitution in protection of their, of their interests. My only point about that is, you know, even crooks have rights. And, 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 and part of the difficulty of is how to get the balance right. Now, the question here is that just because you are alleged to have been a cartel by the Competition Commission doesn't mean you are one. And so there are difficulties. I think we might not have got the balance right. I'm prepared to accept that readily. But I do think it's not as easy a problem as simply saying they're bad guys, no rights, they're good guys, they have rights. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says Japan will help Africa double its rask production by the year 2030. It said Japanese technology would play a key role in helping Africa produce 15 million tons of rice a year. The aim is to encourage small-scale farmers to grow food to sell as well as food to eat. China has indicated it won't immediately impose retaliatory tariffs against the United States. The decision is a sign that it's trying to curtail a bitter trade war between the world's two largest economies. The BBC's Celia Hattin reports. In a sign that China is trying to dial down the damaging trade war between the world's two largest economies, Beijing did not announce a plan to hit back against the Trump administration's imposition of tariffs on almost all Chinese goods entering the U.S. Instead, a spokesperson for the Chinese Commerce Ministry, Gao Feng, said that China has sufficient means to take countermeasures against the United States. However, he says it wants to discuss the cancellation of tariffs on $550 billion worth of Chinese goods. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has outlined his priorities after accepting a mandate to form a new coalition government. Conte was nominated by the populist five-star movement with the backing of the Democratic Party. 
He has promised to make Italy's economy more competitive, to fight corruption and to work on behalf of all citizens. The U.S. dollar is trading at 357.53 Nigeria Naira, 10.94 Botswana Pula, at 102.21 Kenyan Shilling and at 13.07 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.13 Brazilian Hale, 66.60 Russian Ruble, 71.66 Indian Rupee, 7.16 Chinese Wang and at 15.34 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,541 and platinum at $904 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $60.12 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for your sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. From the sports desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with tennis news. Despite a first-round exit at the U.S. Open, South Africa's Lloyd Harris will still be smiling all the way to the bank. The world number 100 lost in straight sets to Belarusian qualifier Igor Jarasimov on Tuesday, but will still cash in on a cool 58,000 U.S. dollars for his first-round appearance. Harris has made great strides this year by qualifying for the main draws of all four Grand Slam events. He also won his first Grand Slam match at the French Open when he defeated Czech qualifier Lucas Rosol 6-1-4-6-2-6-6-1-6-2 in a five-set classic at Roland Garros. The 22-year-old had a career-high ranking of 82nd last month. He was the only South African participating in the main draw of the men's singles following the withdrawal due to knee injury of the 2017 finalist Kevin Anderson. In soccer news, the South African Premiership side Cape Town City coach Benny McCarthy has challenged his striker Kemit Erasmus to be more consistent and take his chances when he gets them. The Port Elizabeth bonus striker has been recalled to the Bafana Bafana squad by interim coach Mulifinzeki, along with the club captain Tamsang Mamkize and Tato Mugeke as the national team play a friendly away against Zambia next month. Although McCarthy is happy to see Erasmus included and does not not doubt his talent. He feels that Erasmus needs to deliver more consistently. No, listen, I think you can see Kermit hardworking. Um, movement has been amazing and, you know, he's getting back to his, his best. He's getting back to his best, but I think he also needs to be more consistent. Because as a striker, uh, you're going to go games where you don't get opportunities, you know? And it's best. That's how life is. But when you get a game where you get three or four, score three or four. Because that's what the best players in the world do. McCarthy says that at national level, Erasmus is competing with players like Pesitao and Lebumutiba, who are consistently delivering in Europe. Kenya will face off with Uganda in the final of the Sikafa Under-15 Championship in Asmara, Eritrea, on Friday after both sides won their respective semi-final matches on Wednesday. While Uganda easily thrashed Burundi 6-0, 10 men Kenya was made to work extra hard, beating Rwanda 4-2 on post-match penalties after a one-all draw in regulation time. Kenya will be looking to continue with their good run in the competition, having gone on to the final with Without losing a single game after winning three and drawing one in the group stages. And finally, in motocross sports. 
Seven nations, including hosts Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, Uganda and Kenya, will compete in the 2019 Motocross of African Nations, taking place this weekend at Donnybrook Park in Harare, Zimbabwe. The Ugandan side, who finished third in the last edition, behind champions South Africa and runners-up Zimbabwe, left Kampala on Wednesday vowing to return with a gold medal. Peter Ndiwalana, Uganda team manager, says they are well prepared for what lies ahead. As Team Uganda we are very very ready and we are very excited that we are going to perform well because the riders have been really training hard and as you well know that in Busika we added sand. Uh, in Zimbabwe the track is so sandy, so sandy as you hear. So since we added sand in Busika and, and our riders have been training in sand, we are very sure that in, in, in Zimbabwe at Donbrook Park we are going to do wonders and we are going to come back with, uh, with the trophy for the all African nations. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto NETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-seven. That's how we draw to a close this uh, hour. Be sure to join us again from nineteen hundred hours Central African time, right here on Channel Africa. Should you have any comments on the show so far, all you need to do is send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. Send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, and you can tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, and Oliver Mtukuzi with "Hello, My Baby." See you later. Hey baby, hey, hey beautiful girl, see. Hey baby, hey, 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 hey beautiful girl, Charagadinga. Hey baby, hey, see. Hey baby, hey, 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 hey beautiful girl, come along, come along to kiss me. I send a messenger to tell you that I want to meet you at the station. The station. Come along, come along to kiss me. Oh, boom, we want for I'm going. Come along, come along to kiss me. Ash, oh, yeah. for I'm going. Don't you kiss me. Nice, nice. Nice, nice. for I'm going. Don't you kiss me. Nice, nice. Oh, boom, we want for I'm going. Come along. Come along. Come along. Come along. Come along, you, you, you. Hello, 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 my baby. Hello, my love. 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 Hello, my love.
Hello, my sweet. Hello, my Hello, my sweet. 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 Hello, my sweet.